Hello and welcome back to the Georgetown Public Policy Review Podcast. I'm your host, Amélie Ders. Today I am talking to Emily Horn, the founder and CEO of Allegro Public Affairs, and previously served as first special assistant to the president, spokesperson, and director for press, na- press at the National Security Council in the Biden administration. I know you've held multiple other positions as well, which I am sure will come up to today's discussion, but I truly can think of no better person to talk to about policy communication in today's social media landscape. Emily, welcome. Thanks, Emily, for having me. Great to be with you all. Awesome. Since you are a comms expert and we've had so many chats about media literacy, specifically on social media platforms, I thought it would be fun to ask some of our students questions about their own media literacy. So I'm going to run a tape for you uh, just to kick off our interview. What's something you learned on social media that you'll never forget? The concept of girl dinner. Have you ever seen fake news before? Yes. What was it? Oh, um, that there were drugs on the Prime Minister of Canada's plane on his way back from the summit. How do you know it was fake news? (laughs) Because it was on Twitter. (laughs) What's something you learned on social media that you'll never forget? That avocados are going extinct. Have you ever seen fake news before? Yeah. What was it? Um, That the Biden administration has been offering $2,200 to illegal immigrants. (laughs) How do you know it was fake news? Because <laughs> it actually got called out a few weeks after. What's something you learned on social media that you will never forget? The whole Barbie uh, marketing campaign. <laughs> Have you ever seen fake news before? Yes. What was it? To be honest, I cannot even remember one on top of my head. In my head, it goes so quickly that I see it, I forget. What's something you learned on social media that you will never forget? Um, that cats like being brushed by a toothbrush because it reminds them of being groomed by their mothers. <laughs> Cute. Have you ever seen fake news before? Yeah. What was it? Um, there was this AI deepfake um, ad of Tom Hanks in this like dental advertisement that he had to come out and just kind of clear up saying that he wasn't in it. How do you know it was fake news? Because he said so. <laughs> Awesome. Thank you. Fascinating. Lots of uh, interesting fodder there. Right? Yeah. It was really fun to ask people questions about Mm -hmm. like what they've seen on social media, how educated they feel about how to identify um, stuff that they're seeing that's not real. Mm -hmm. Um, So to kick us off, now that you've heard what our students have to say, I am personally dying to know about how an expert like yourself would answer these questions. (laughs) Um, what's something you learned on social media that you'll never forget? Oh, gosh. Um, let's see. Um, I've been really obsessed with the Eras Tour this year, so I feel mm. like I now have a parasocial relationship with several of Taylor Swift's backup dancers because of social media. Oh, I could not relate more. And then a slightly modified question, um, because I'm sure you've seen <laughs> fake news. Have you ever intervened in stopping fake news before, either personally or professionally? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and one of your uh, one of your interviews there mentioned uh, when she saw something debunked that it was debunked a couple of weeks later. I think that speaks to the challenge of trying. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the challenges of trying to push back against disinformation or misinformation on social media. And I use those terms instead of fake news because, in my mind, fake news is something that's been so politicized, particularly in the U.S. context. And so. 
I use disinformation uh, basically as a fancy term for lies, where the person who is saying it knows it to be false and is saying it or expressing it anyways. Misinformation, the information is not accurate, but uh, the person who is putting it out into the world may not know that. Um, so it's an important distinction. I think it goes to the intent of why something is out in the world. Um, and it also is important for understanding, like, how do we push back against it? Because the tactics that you can use um, for fighting disinformation, misinformation may differ, uh, depending on what the intent is. Uh, someone who is misinformed, who is consuming information that they believe to be true, um, this, and the speaker believes it to be true, you know, there's an opportunity to have a conversation. There's an opportunity to fact check. And so, yes, both uh, in government and also uh, when I was working at Twitter in 2017 and 2018, we did a lot of fact checking. Um, something pops up on social media and we say, uh, here's actually the truth or here's context that was missing that you think you need to know. Um, or here's um, the, the real version of what, how this happened, what you saw was manipulated or edited footage or um, perhaps even invented whole cloth. But that's a different approach than I think when you're dealing with disinformation, mm -hmm. when the person who is pushing it knows it to be false and doesn't care because having it out in the world serves their agenda. And so you've got to use some different tactics when you're pushing back against disinformation. Um, exposing who is uh, doing the, the disinforming can be a big part of that. Like, who is this person? Why are they putting this out in the world? And to what end? Helping explain that to audiences can go a long way. Pre-budding can also go a long way. Sometimes you can anticipate what an adversary is going to do, and you can get it out into the world before they put it out there and kind of take some of the sting out of, uh, out of that disinformation attempt. Um, but it's always an uphill battle, um, because if you care about the truth and your adversary doesn't, then you're inherently operating at a disadvantage mm -hmm. uh, tactically, um, because they can move faster, they can be sloppier, um, and they can, if something doesn't work, just move on to the next tactic. Whereas you, if you care about the truth, you're held accountable, you've got to work to make sure that what you're putting out into the world is accurate, mm -hmm. um, you've got to be credible, and you've got to build that credibility with your audience. All of that takes time and resources, and it can be, uh, you know, if you you're wrong, especially if you're knowingly wrong yourself, you can do a lot of damage to your credibility. So it's a, it's a tough fight. But the good news is I think we're talking about this. Mm -hmm. The terms disinformation and misinformation are in people's vocabularies mm -hmm. in 2023 in a way that they weren't even a few years ago. You know, we talk about these as part of a healthy media diet and how we talk about these as part of being an informed citizenry. Um, so I think that there's a lot of cause for optimism because we've identified the problem. Um, now we're working on what to do about it. Yeah, absolutely. And this leads really well sort of into something else I wanted to chat about, specifically with your professional expertise. During the run-up to Russia's 2022 invasion of Ukraine, you helped execute the Biden administration's strategy to declassify, share, and publicize intelligence, which is something mm -hmm. we've chatted a lot about um, in the past few months. Part of this effort, um, my understanding, was to control the narrative around the invasion and rally support of Ukraine. Um, with the rise of misinformation, which we all know spreads like wildfire on social media platforms, will we see this strategy carried out more by the U.S. government and foreign affairs, you mm -hmm. think? Um, or was this really a one-time strategy? 
I think you'll see it more and more. Um, and I think that's just a, in part a reflection of how the information environment has evolved. Mm-hmm. So take a step back to 2014, Russia's invasion of Crimea, you know, which I think in retrospect, the US government really saw the signs in the intelligence uh, that this was a military operation that was being planned by Russia that was going mm-hmm. to be launched within a certain window. And there was a lot of behind the scenes diplomacy to, you know, try to prevent it from happening, but very little, you know, informing the public because the information was classified. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a great deal of frustration within the U.S. government, mm-hmm. obviously, certainly within the Ukrainian government, um, but certainly within the U.S. government that you saw something uh, in the intelligence, but you your hands were tied in being able to get it out into the world because mm-hmm. of the classification challenge. Um, also, again, we talk about these things differently. Um, we under I think we the U.S. populace generally understands misinformation and disinformation uh, much better today than we did in 2014, in part because we ourselves have been subjected mm-hmm. to state-sponsored disinformation attacks, most notably Russian interference in the 2016 election, mm-hmm. which um, really cleaved existing social um, and uh cultural divisions within the United States um, by way of a disinformation campaign largely on social media perpetrated Mm -hmm. by by Russia. Um, And so we, um, it's also a reflection of the fact that there's a number of actors who are in the citizen journalism or open Mm -hmm. source space who talk about these things and you report many of the same things that we can see in intelligence, but their information is not classified. They can publish their own satellite imagery, their own citizen reporting, uh, their own analysis based on their own expertise, which is considerable for many of these outlets. Um, what they see uh, happening in real time. So if it's already out there, if we have it, the question is, how do we share it in a way that does not compromise our sources and methods? Mm-hmm. You know, Russia, I think we we had very good insight into what they were planning um, without going into those sources and methods. We found that there was a lot that we could declassify about mm-hmm. some of the things that they were considering or actively planning in the run-up of their invasion of Ukraine. And uh, again, without getting into sources and methods, Mm -hmm. we know that publicizing some of those things, things like um, crisis actor plots to foment a pretext for invading Ukraine, uh, things like plans to uh, ethnically cleanse certain areas of Ukraine or hold Ukrainian citizens in uh, in camps, plans to uh, depose or even execute uh, democratically elected Ukrainian leadership and install puppet government governance uh, in parts of Ukraine. You know, being able to talk about these plots and expose them before mm-hmm. they could get off the ground did a couple of things. One, it denied Russia the ability to surprise the world with launching these plans. Um, two, it exposed them for what they were, so that even if they, we were not able to deter them, which was ultimately you know, what we hoped to do, mm-hmm. but even if we couldn't deter them, then we would deny them the ability to claim legitimacy for their actions, to mm-hmm. say we felt ethnic Russians were under threat, and so therefore we had to take these actions, or to say you know, we were doing this for any other XBS reason. Um, you know, by exposing them, you deny them the legitimacy um, and you deny them the opportunity to make their case um, and use our own media against us in that sense. So, um, again, I think you, Russia was a unique case because there was some novelty to it, candidly. It was a coordinated effort and it was the first time the U.S. government had done a coordinated effort like that, I think, in, in such a, a thorough way and in such a way that had such a good understanding of um 
of one how the how it would play in in the media and how it would play around the world, but also in service of clear foreign policy objectives. You know, we didn't do it because it was fun to do or because we could. We did mm-hmm. it because we were trying to stop an invasion. And if we were not able to do that, then we wanted to hold the world together in holding Russia accountable. Mm-hmm. So the challenge now is how do you take those capabilities of downgrading and sharing information in service of a foreign policy or national security objective and apply them to other objectives? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, key for this is you have to have the information. And I think, again, mm-hmm. without getting into sources and methods, there are things that are happening in the world today where maybe we don't have the same level of mm-hmm. insight into what bad actors may be planning. And so, you know, something I hear from um, from friends in the press now is, you know, you guys could do this for, for Russia and Ukraine. Why can't you do it for, uh, for Israel-Gaza? You know, why couldn't you do it for Hamas um, or the invasion on October 7th, the attack on October 7th? And the answer is, well, we did not know that that was coming. Mm-hmm. Israel did not know it was coming. Um, so you have to have the knowledge uh, and you have to have the... Um, you have to have the intelligence in order to run plays like this. That's that's the foundation for it. Um, and, you know, I think it's fair to say that being successful in that has probably raised some expectations about how do we do this in, in, future, uh, in future settings. And the challenge will be, do we have the intelligence and can we declassify it and share it with the world in a way that doesn't compromise those sources and methods? Right, absolutely. And so when you were at the National Security Council under the Biden administration and then prior to that um, at the State Department mm-hmm. under the Obama administration, how big of a consideration was social media to your communications teams and how often did you strategize around it or was it a timeline of strategization? Did that evolve? Sure. So at the White House, currently under the Biden administration, um, a lot of the social media um, Uh, activity that the administration does proactively is managed through ODS, the Office of Digital Services. So Mm -hmm. I would work very closely with my counterparts in ODS on launching proactive campaigns. So we want to launch a messaging campaign to talk about X foreign policy issues. Mm -hmm. So let's, you know, get together and think about what platform does that live on? Who's the audience that we're trying to reach? um, And that will determine what platform we go to. Uh, how can we do some creative storytelling using social media in a way that's uh, you know a good fit for that platform and for that audience? You know, it's all about you know as we've talked about in group throughout the semester. You know, mm-hmm. all of communications really comes back to three fundamental questions: Who is my audience? Where is my audience? And what is the impact that I want to have on my audience? Um, and that's true of you know traditional communications. It's true of social media, um, and so those were always the, the you know mm-hmm. the foundations for any plan. Now, reactive is something different. Um, And I think Mm -hmm. this was something, you know, I I left government for a time um, and I left in government in 2017 and then I came back in in uh, uh, January of 2021 as a Biden political appointee. And the pace of the job had changed completely in those four years, largely due to the advent of social media as a really indispensable part of every reporter's life and therefore every communications professional's life. Uh, Twitter in particular. And so something that I had to be and my team had to be much more active on was being on these platforms as government spokespeople. I think when I was in government before, we used them fairly passively as media monitoring services, or if we did use them you know, proactively, it would be in like a very benign way. You know, black, you know, here's a press release that we just put out and I'll post it up on Twitter. Um, but it was much more of a conversation. 
that was happening uh, when I uh, came back uh, in government. And by mm-hmm. conversation, I mean having that conversation on platform in mm-hmm. real time, not just sort of passively listening to what other people were talking about. So that could be having an exchange with a reporter in real time about something that they were working on and me saying, you know, in addition to whatever comment I might give for a story, um, me, if they're putting out something that I think is inaccurate or is missing context, correcting that in real time Mm -hmm. on Twitter, on platform, because it's not going to be enough to wait for the eventual story to come out on, and I don't mean to pick on any particular outlet here, but like, you know, CNN.com or the Washington Post or Breitbart. Um, You've got to engage on the platform where that conversation Mm -hmm. is happening and and where the opinion is being shaped in real time. Speed is essential. And you can't wait for the final story to pop and run and be accurate if the conversation that's happening on social media is not the one that needs to be happening. Yeah, absolutely. And so let's talk about a hot word. Okay. Propaganda. Okay, let's do um, it. How, you know, you've talked about how the government is, is you know, treating social media and, and sort of trying to combat misinformation and disinformation efforts. Um, how do individuals go about deciphering bias and motive in the context of international affairs, especially in a position where we're not necessarily educated enough on the topic? Sure. I mean, there's a couple of things. Um, so I'm a huge proponent of media literacy education, and I think it should start young, younger than it does right now. I have a seven-year-old and a three-year-old, and with my seven-year-old, I'm already talking about, you know, where did you hear this? Who's it? Mm-hmm. Are you hearing other people saying it? How do you know it's true? These are questions that you can start asking very early in life. Um, you know, where did you see this? Mm-hmm. Um, who told you? Um, why do you think this is true? You know, without correcting people, but encouraging them to ask questions questions and interrogate what it is they're seeing. Um, you know, I think the first question is always where, you know, where did you hear this? Mm-hmm. Why do you trust this source? Who is the source? Um, why are they credible to you? Um, and then I think when you're talking about whether it's, you know, it's breaking news, it's always important to remember first reports are almost always inaccurate in some key ways. And that's mm-hmm. usually not through anything malicious. It's just because facts emerge as events unfold and as mm-hmm. reporting unfolds. And so, you know, being patient, uh, waiting for something to be confirmed by official sources before letting rumors fly mm-hmm. around is really, mm-hmm. really important. Um, again, looking to who that source is. Um, Social media can be great for elevating voices that are being actively suppressed by authorities. Um, It's a wonderful way for people to speak truth to power and to give a voice and platform people who otherwise may not have access to influence their policymakers or their Mm -hmm. lawmakers. What it's really can be very dangerous about is when rumors start to fly in the midst of crises or natural disasters or moments of great concern. And so as I see, um, you know, more and more sort of a balkanization of social media um, and people getting different information from different sources in real time. Um, you know, what I see there is a common quest for wanting to understand the world around us, but really not being sure about how you can trust information. Mm-hmm. And so it really does come down, I think, to, to your point about, a lot about teaching individuals to have good information hygiene, teaching them to in- interrogate the sources of what they're seeing, mm-hmm. teach them to take a beat. You don't need to share everything right away, um, but, you know, take a minute to read the full story, not just the headline. Ask yourself, why is this coming out now? Why am I seeing this now? Um, can I verify this from other sources? Uh, those are all really, really important questions to ask. And when in doubt, focus on being right over being first, because it's really basically impossible to be both. 
Yeah, that's a really excellent point. And I, I would love to chat about media literacy more. Um, before we do that, though, I, I want to focus specifically in on social media platforms. Yes. Um, we see so much misinformation on these platforms. Um, we've seen social media's companies, especially during the pandemic, start to take action, like adding warning banners to fact check posts that have been identified as potentially false. Um, you see this like pop up on your Instagram story, et cetera, yeah. um, which begs the question, where should the burden of truth lie? And I'm curious if you have an opinion on this. Is the responsibility with users? Is it with the company or even the government to provide accurate information and call out misinformation? I think it's all of the above, um, but to varying degrees and varying roles. I think it's first of all important to remember that the social media platforms where so many of us get information are not regulated. Um, these are privately held companies mm -hmm. in some cases. Um, and even if they do are public and report to a board of directors or report to shareholders, that doesn't make them government utilities or government entities. Mm -hmm. It's also really important to remember these are global platforms. A lot of them are headquartered in America. And as Americans, I think a lot of us view them through an American user lens. Mm -hmm. But you need to, if you're Twitter or whatever we're calling it these days, or if you're Meta <laughs> or, um, or YouTube, you're service, your platform needs to be um, legally operable around the world. And mm -hmm. so we need to be careful in holding um, these platforms, I think, just to an American context of what we establish truth to be. Um, because truth, I think, facts are not subjective. Truth can be subjective. And so differentiating also between what are facts and what is truth is really important. Um, facts that can be verified and, uh, and proven that add context uh, to a conversation, those are good things, I think, objectively mm -hmm. to lift, and they're good things for individual users to look for, and they're always good things for government to cite. Mm -hmm. um, I personally am inherently suspicious of anyone who tells me that they have an absolute knowledge of absolute truth. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody has the ability to claim that, um, <laughs> no matter how many facts they have at their disposal. Um, but also because um, truth is emotional for, for people. That's just, I think, our lived reality. And so focusing on facts, focusing on, um, again, sort of slowing down. Don't just read the headline, but read the full story. Mm -hmm. You know, there are social media platforms um, that I think have made really good steps in this direction. Um, to interstitial content that they know to be factually inaccurate, mm -hmm. or that they, um, or to add um, a user community that adds unnecessary context mm -hmm. to something that you know, taken out of context may sound really inflammatory, mm -hmm. um, but you know you can make clear that this was subjectively edited mm -hmm. or that this was manipulated imagery in some way. That is information and context that I would like to see platforms add more and more. I do think also it's it's incumbent upon individuals to be on the lookout for it and again to interrogate what it is they're seeing now that's those are different things than government regulation um and i think again when you frame it in terms of truth you make it very very difficult to have right. a conversation about government regulation i do not think that it should be in the business of any government to determine what a what what a truth is for uh, for their citizens to believe. That's a very dangerous thing. Again, what they can do is they can lay out facts and they can be active on platforms. They mm -hmm. can present their own facts as well. 
and where there are clear legal violations uh, of the um, that are being that are happening on a social media platform, that is, I think, a really important point for intervention. So when a social mm-hmm. media platform is being used to um, foment uh, terrorist content, or when a social media platform is being used to share images mm-hmm. of child pornography or mm-hmm. child sexual exploitation mm-hmm. or non-consensual nudity amongst adults, those are really clear instances, I think, where there's a strong need for government regulation of these platforms. But speech is very different. We regulate speech in this country uh, very differently also than a lot of other countries do. And mm-hmm. so um, I think it's really important for um, you know these American companies that have the advantages of the First Amendment um, and whose citizens have a full expectation of exercising their First Amendment rights to be mindful that not every country has their own First Amendment. Yes, I think that makes a lot of sense. A, a multifaceted approach where social media platforms are clear about what's been edited, what's been you know, manipulated individuals are diligent about being on the lookout. Um, And governments also have the ability to leverage social media to present their own facts and then sort of regulation and clear instances of, of, you know, human rights violations, Mm -hmm. um, things that call for regulation. Um, And so one of my favorite things to chat with you about is um, during the fall of 2017, you led Global Communications for X, previously known as Twitter. Always Twitter for me. Right. I still have a lot of Larry the Bird merch. That's how I'll send my kids to college. That's how they're day. So Twitter. Yeah. Um, at its first ever congressional hearing, and then this was shortly after accusations that foreign entities had interfered with the 2016 election via Meta, Meta mm-hmm. previously known as Facebook. Wow, the social media companies changing their names is just, it's its giving Enron. I don't think that's a, that's an old <laughs> reference, but it's giving Enron. As an elderly millennial, I'm right there with you. Don't worry. Yeah, as, a, as somebody who used to work at a company that was named Enron and uh, now <laughs> something different, uh, I understand. Um, but this was really the first time social media companies had to testify at large about their role in politics. Um Can you speak about what you think came out of these testimonies? Mm -hmm. Look, I think um, a big takeaway for me personally was that there was not a tremendous amount of understanding by elected members of Congress or their Mm -hmm. staffs about how these platforms worked. And so there is an opportunity to educate and have a conversation about them in real time. But something that disturbed me was a lack of curiosity um, from both sides Mm -hmm. of the aisle um, about what happened Um, what we did to ourselves, essentially, Um, and a real assumption that, again, it was really partisan on both sides of the aisle Mm -hmm. about how um, disinformation and state-sponsored disinformation in particular around the 2016 election, Mm -hmm. um, how much of a role it actually played in our elections. Mm -hmm. I look back at that time, and my main takeaway is that um, state actors, Russia chiefly, um, you know, were able to you know do do damage to our democracy, mm-hmm. but that we did most of the damage to ourselves. Um, there is no reason why a lot of this content, which was frankly very low quality, very spammy, um, obviously you know not um, uh, you know attributable to real people. Um, mm-hmm. You know, there's no reason that most of it ever should have gotten the attention that it did. But, you know, what we found was that, yes, this was on platform and it shouldn't have been on platform. It violated the Twitter terms of Mm -hmm. service in all sorts of ways, not for the most part because of the content of the substance of the Mm -hmm. tweets that people would hold up. Um, Most of the violations were because of, um, you know, they they were created under a multiple account violation. So Mm -hmm. you can't create multiple accounts that all send the same thing. You know, that's just spammy and bad, a bad user experience. And it's not allowed under the Twitter rules. And so we should have caught it, but we didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, You also, um, 
you also can't, um, you know, create, there were a whole bunch of bot violations, mm-hmm. for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some, um, and there were some other uh, accounts that, you know, violated the Twitter rules in a whole bunch of other ways. Things mm-hmm. like lying about um, polling information was a violation mm-hmm. of the Twitter rules. And some of those were allowed to go forward, but they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. But the vast majority of it was, frankly, pretty crappy quality that never should have been elevated. What happened was, because it was politically convenient for one party or another mm-hmm. to um, have this content on platform, you would see legitimate users, um, real people, real accounts, real active users on Twitter, who would sort of pluck this out of the muck of of Twitter and launder it and push it out to their followers and amplify it. And then when the Twitter hearings, when the the social media hearings in the fall of 2017 Mm -hmm. were happening, you know, it got even more attention. Um, Stuff that was, again, really low quality um, Mm -hmm. that never under normal conditions would have ever sort of penetrated the average Twitter Mm -hmm. user's Mm -hmm. consciousness. Um, It got elevated even more and more. And the fact of reporters talking about it, the fact of members of Congress talking about it, I think inadvertently made it even more a part of our discourse. Mm -hmm. And I saw a real lack of curiosity around that. Um, What by trying to expose these influence operations might we inadvertently be doing to in fact further amplify them um but part of the you know when kinetic terrorists uh, when they launch a terrorism operation there's the initial attack and however many people it kills or injures but the broader goal is to stoke fear and information operations there's the initial operations that um are going to have whatever impact that they're going to have but the ripple effects the distrust that they sow the partisanship that they uh, increase and intensify and solidify mm-hmm. um the the impact on our democracy from those i think is far greater than the initial um you know round of crappy tweets or accounts that should have been caught but weren't during the 2016 election that's the much more insidious thing that i think we really have yet to reckon with as a democracy mm-hmm. yeah i think that's a, a really good call out um i'm also like specifically curious about to hear more about the understanding of congress people to to really understand technology are you saying that they didn't understand is the technological aspect the issue, or was it the effect of the technological aspect that seemed to be lost? Um, I think both. Um, so there's the obvious technical things, like there. This was not a hearing that I was participating in, but the mm-hmm. sort of infamous Mark Zuckerberg Senator right. We Run Ads mm-hmm. hearing, yeah. um, you know, sort of speaks to the lack of technical understanding mm-hmm. and how these platforms work and what their business model is. Um, but, you know, I, we had members or staff who would ask us, well, why don't you just tell us what the algorithm is and then we can help you figure out how to fix it. You know, the implicit right. conversation, you know, the, the, the explicit in this case conversation being we'll regulate your algorithms. Anybody who knows anything about how algorithms are built and run knows that that is nonsense. You can't pull out a line of code from an algorithm and say, we're going to have lawmakers look at this and regulate it. Right. And that that's just not how the technology actually works. But then there's also, I think there was a lack of understanding about, again, these are global platforms that mm-hmm. you can't um, just apply the American context to, and how difficult it is to ask a platform to be the arbiter of truth. Um, again, mm-hmm. the difference between truth and facts is, I think, mm-hmm. a very important one to pull out because truth can be mm-hmm. subjective and facts can, I, th- I think facts are, are not subjective, facts are facts. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a very difficult thing to look to a social media platform to adjudicate what is truth. And I think we saw a lot of interest from both sides of the aisle in 
uh, in Twitter, specifically from my equities and mm-hmm. in social media platforms more broadly taking that on mm-hmm. um, when, you know, depending on the, what a, what context you have, what set of facts you're looking at, two very reasonable people could look at the same situation and walk away with completely different truths about it. Um, that's a difficult thing to ask a social media company to weigh in on. Um, and I, f- I definitely felt like walking away from both private conversations and public testimony on uh, that topic that everyone was unsatisfied with the status quo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and I asked this question because I, I also am weary of, of the idea of technicality being a inhibitor to mm-hmm. regulation. I, I would love to see a world where people feel like they can demand more of technology regardless mm-hmm. of, of how much they know, um, which is why I think talking to a comms professional is important because this this perspective is important um, and you don't have to be, you know, the best developer in the world to, to talk about this stuff. Um, so I'd love to pivot back sort of sure. to media literacy and, you know, what are the non-technical, non-regulation things that mm-hmm. we can do to combat uh, misinformation and disinformation? Mm-hmm. Um California schools, I was just reading yesterday, are now required to teach students, um, the article said fake news, but the bill specifically cites misinformation and disinformation um, in English, science, and math and history classes throughout every grade level. And I believe this is also something that has been adopted by New Jersey, Illinois, Delaware, and my home state, Washington state, will actually, I think, adopt this soon. So do you think we'll see more of this? Is something that you is this something that you think we should advocate for at a federal level, media literacy? I, I would love to see it at a federal level. I think because the issue is so politicized, it's difficult to imagine. Um, certainly through Congress being as dysfunctional as it is right now, it's very mm-hmm. difficult to imagine legislation moving forward on this without becoming intensely politicized. I'm glad that there are states moving forward on it. Um, in a perfect world, I think we would have federal legislation and federal support for better media literacy. Um, there are countries in Europe in particular that do this quite effectively. Um, Finland is, uh, I think, probably the, the most shining example of a country that perhaps understandably it has an 800 mile long border with Russia um, mm-hmm. and so is uh, keenly aware of the impacts of disinformation and state sponsored disinformation on a populace um, really does this exceptionally well and and actively teaches media literacy in Finnish schools from a very young age and has strong federal support for these uh, uh, for these efforts awesome thank you well thank you so much for chatting about this um, Just to finish us off, what do you think of podcasting as a mode of political communication? Is this something, I know it's a new sort of fad, is this Mm -hmm. something that you might have adopted when you had worked under the Biden or Obama administration? Is this something even on the radar of communications teams? You know, the the White House under Obama launched um, West Wing Weekly, I think is what it was called. So regular um, podcast and uh, and video um, podcast Mm -hmm. or videography, whatever we called it, I can't even remember, (laughs) of uh, what was happening in in, uh, the West Wing. Um, Uh, that week. And I think, look, I'm a fan of podcasting. I mean, the market's fairly saturated right now. (laughs) But I think any time that you have an ability to have a face-to-face conversation with someone, Mm -hmm. it's a good thing. Um, And any time that you have the ability to have a longer conversation that has context and nuance and a back and forth and exchange of ideas in addition to a sharing of facts, it's a good thing. So I'm in favor of it. More podcasts. Bring them on. (laughs) And do you have any feedback for a new, young, bright-eyed podcaster who's just trying to get political media right? Oh, gosh. Um, Well, one, you're entering a very crowded space. So think again about who is your audience, where is your audience, and what's the impact you want to have on them? Those are the key questions for any communicator. And know who you are. 
be authentic, be credible, be consistent. If you're going to launch a podcast, don't do it without at least eight episodes in the can so that you've got plenty of content to go at the very beginning. Um, have good marketing, have good branding, have interesting guests. Um, yeah, and have fun with it. I think people don't like being talked at. They like being entertained. And so you can have a smart, substantive uh, informative conversation in a way that makes people enjoy the experience, not just makes them feel like they're being droned at. Awesome. Well, I love love ending on an authentic and hopefully entertaining note for all of our listeners. Thank I hope you, we entertained Emily you, again. friends. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you again for joining us. Thanks, Emily. Great to be with you.